Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English, and we are looking at the book of Exodus. You guys feeling excited about Exodus? Extra, extra excited. There we go. There we go. Exceptionally uh, so, one might say. There we go. Exceptionally excited about Exodus. That's what we should title the season right there. Um, mm. uh, or Exodus for the rest of us. That was what you suggested mm-hmm. a couple episodes ago. Well, I said ago. the rest of us because I was being exceptionally excellent at Exodus. There we go. Well, triple uh, X. We should call it Triple X. No. Oh, hold on a second. Let's rewind that one back. <laughs> Uh, that, oh, that is, the new hey, hey, oh, hey. I meant, no, I didn't mean that triple X. I meant like triple X, the movie. Oh. No, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. We know. Uh, we know hundred percent, hundred percent. Uh, which I 100% didn't see. Cause that was a very bad movie. Of course. None of us have, uh, none should, none, none, none should who, who among us has seen a bad movie. Certainly not any of us. Okay. Uh, let's get to what we're talking about today. We are talking about Exodus chapter four, specifically starting to focusing uh, in on signs and the power of God and signs. And so there, th- this is uh, significant, again, not just for the flow of the story of Exodus, though it is, but for the flow of the rest of scripture, because it's not uncommon to find signs of God accompanying the power of his deliverance at work in the world. And we see that here in this story as well. So JT is going to get us started with Exodus chapter four, verses one through nine. And then uh, we're going to explore this as a biblical theme. So JT, take us away. This is Exodus four, verses one through nine. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse 6. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and he took it out and had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become like blood on the ground. There we go. So I want us to begin with something we talked about a little bit 
in the last episode. Um, but there's kind of this motif throughout the Bible of the insufficient messenger, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Like the insufficient called person. Like when Moses answers, hey, they're not going to believe me or listen to me. Um, and Moses is, is doubting throughout his interactions, specifically early on uh, with God, that he can really do what God is calling him to do. And this comes up again and again and again. Like, how could I do this? And and the response of God to Moses is, I'm going to be with you. My power is going to go with you. My presence is going to go with you. And specifically here, God gives Moses the promise or the assurance of signs that his power is going to be displayed. And he gives them some pretty concrete ways in which that's going to happen. Um, these signs uh, serve to demonstrate the presence of God's grace or judgment, Um what are some interesting other places where we see God basically say, hey, I'm going to show you through this unique sign? Because they're not norms. We shouldn't, as the people of God, shouldn't expect like, hey, when God wants to demonstrate his power today, take a staff, throw it on the ground. If it becomes a serpent, God is with you. If it doesn't become a serpent, you're not with God and you might need to check your heart. That's not, we're not getting a prescription here, but we are getting a theme that God's Mm -hmm. movement is typically accompanied by unique signs. Where else Mm -hmm. do we see that across the Bible? Yeah, I mean, one place that comes to mind that's actually been popularized a great deal among um, Christians, and I would say, in a difficult way is the story of Gideon where, and, and it's important too, I think to lay Gideon's story up against this story to see why Gideon's story is kind of terrible. Because in this instance, we have Moses who's been told you're going to deliver God's people. And Moses does not say, give me a sign. Yeah, He says, what am I going to, how are they going to believe me? Mm-hmm. Um, Gideon, on the other hand, who is also a deliverer, he's been tasked with delivering his, his people uh, on a smaller scale says, show me a sign. He says, I'm not going to do it unless you prove that you are able to do this. And so his disposition is very different than than what we see here with Moses. And uh, as long as Gideon is calling the shots and demanding a sign of God, Gideon receives no peace on the other side of it. He just needs another sign. And so I think we see in Gideon what we see come to full flower in the New Testament when Christ shows up and there are signs accompanying his ministry. And he says, a wicked and perverse generation asks me for a sign. Mm -hmm. Um, A sign is something that God graciously gives to Moses here, but it is not something that Moses requires of the Lord. And I think that's a really important, I think for modern day Christians who want to ask God for a sign um, to walk by sight and not by faith, this is a, this story is, um, is one that is instructive to us. Although I would also caution that um, we're not large scale deliverers leading the people of God out of um, slavery. And we should be cautious about how we think about this in general. Speak for yourself. Yeah, no, and, that, and, and, and I think <laughs> that's good because one of the things that we often think about the signs accompanying the presence of God's blessed grace. And certainly mm-hmm. there are signs that accompany uh, the manifestation of the presence of God's blessed grace throughout the mm-hmm. Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the signs mm-hmm. after Pentecost are an example of that. Yeah, But the signs also often accompany the judgment of God. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I don't think that it's just like a general, I don't think we should assume the unique miraculous signs of God are not always an indicator that God believes things are as they should be. Sometimes they're an indicator of God demonstrating things are bad. Mm -hmm. And these signs are an indication 
that um, my judgment has come upon you um, and or my judgment has come upon the wicked. The signs also too throughout scripture are not uniformly designed for God's judgment against the nations. He mm-hmm. performs, there are miraculous or supernatural signs or works that are performed uh, where God is exercising divine judgment against his own people over the course mm-hmm. of them as well. We'll see some of those even in the story uh, of Exodus. I will say, I also would, oh, sorry. No, please. No, you keep going. Um, I'll also oh, say no, that, you guys. It's <laughs> 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 so uh, funny. It is. I, um, yeah, I was not doing it on purpose, guys. I just need you to know. The signs that God gives Moses here too are pretty specific. Like, and mm-hmm. he's showing them, he's showing him stuff he's going to do before he does it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and let's, we should talk about that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. What's significant about the serpent? We've already talked about this a little bit, but like JT, mm-hmm. like why, why does, why does this matter at all? Like why the staff that becomes a serpent? Is this going to come into play later? Does it have relevance to any large mega themes in the Bible? <laughs> Is that a softball? Huh. Am I setting it up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're setting it up. Yeah, it's so hard I, to follow where you want this to go, Kyle. Picking up what you're yeah. laying down. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is something that we see at the very beginning. Uh, we Each episode, we're trying to kind of, we don't want to re-say everything, but just as brief reminders, the serpent is the is the great deceiver, the one who comes in to deceive God's people, to destroy uh, God's covenant to work with his people or to attempt to, and to reap chaos in the world as God's people would no longer be obedient to his word. He's also, the serpent is going to be the one who's eventually crushed in the end, the great Leviathan, the great dragon, the one who eventually, the one who who, who dis- attempts to destroy God's promises is the one who is crushed and destroyed himself. And so we see that here. We see also snakes and serpents in the wilderness and, and, and them being, this is in Numbers, I forget the chapter, uh, and Jesus also talking about this in his ministry of being the one who's going to be lifted up to heal God's people, which I think is something we see here too, is is, is uh God's people are in need of the snake to be crushed and also of for their disease to be healed, which is exactly what Jesus comes to do. And of course, I haven't studied Revelation the same way Jen has, but this is a major theme in the book of Revelation as well. And the, the great deceiver, the serpent that is going to be crushed at the end of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then you have to ask like how, it, again, it, it's important to remember at this stage in the story, Moses has been tasked with going to his own people with these mm-hmm these signs. He's going to go to Pharaoh with these signs, but at this point, he's tasked with going to his own people. He's saying, how will my own people know that I'm genuinely coming from you? And um, what Israel would have immediately known is, oh, this is a commentary on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Because again, as I mentioned in a previous episode, Pharaoh is wearing on his head a serpent. He is probably the clearest embodiment of the serpent king that we get throughout um, the scriptures in terms of type. And he becomes equated with Leviathan uh, and and the dragon. Um, And so when he says, throw down your staff, and then it it could have turned into anything. And I always, I try to ask people as they're reading the Bible, like ask more curious questions. Why doesn't it turn into to a monkey or a zebra? Why is it a serpent? You know, there's a reason. Um, and so when Israel sees a staff, which up to this point has been a shepherd's staff, but in this very scene, we're seeing turn into a different kind of staff. It's going to be the staff that represents Moses' authority. Um, a staff that represents authority is thrown down and it turns into the emblem of um, Pharaoh. 
Moses runs from it. He understands that even in emblematic form, snakes are dangerous and one does not run toward them. And God says, no, you take it by the tail. And then it turns back into what will be Moses' symbol of authority. Um, He's communicating that God is sovereign over the rulers of the earth. He's also communicating that God is sovereign over the natural order. God can take a stick and turn it into a snake. And that 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 is a point of significance you want to hold on to. Because he moves from there, he gives him, he, and Moses doesn't say, well, what if that sign doesn't work? I don't know if you notice that. Mm-hmm. God anticipates that he will need more than one sign. Yeah. And the next sign that he gives him has to do with what? Disease. Yeah. It has to do with disease. And he says, um, so he's, first he says, uh, God is sovereign over the natural order. And then he shows that God is sovereign over um, uh, human disease. He's able to heal. And then the last one, which is a, a one that can be harder for us to see because we're not as familiar with the way um, Israel would have seen this, but the Nile is the source of life for Egypt, which is why it's going to figure so um, significant. It already has figured significantly into the story because the Nile, which is the source of life for Egypt, is used as an instrument of death against uh, the Israelite boys. They're supposed to be drowned in the the very thing that was um, considered a source of life. So there's all this irony that's been built. Um, But then here, what we're seeing is God even is sovereign over life and death when Mm -hmm. when some of the, the Nile's water is turned into blood. So that's a progression, right? That's showing us three things in a particular way. So we would not be surprised to find when we get to the Gospels that when we see Jesus begin his earthly ministry, his miracles fall into the same three categories in the same three order. He first demonstrates his authority over the natural order when he turns water into wine, and then he begins healing people of their infirmities, and then he raises people from the dead. That's right. That's right. That's really, yeah, actually I was not, I hadn't thought about that symmetry before. I'm saying that's right. Like I had thought about that. I have it. And I think it's important to just point out this can cause discomfort for people because it begins to make them feel like, well, maybe the gospel accounts are just constructed, Uh you know, in sort of a false or a mechanical way. And what we need to understand is when we ascribe to the doctrine of scripture that all scripture is is God breathed, that the spirit breathes out these words, um, is that, Yes, are the Gospels based on these Old Testament stories? They are, but they are not in a way that is contrived, um, but in a way that is the unveiling of the whole story from start to finish with with a great sense of purpose. Yeah. And so, it doesn't diminish our sense of the of the um, of the presence of the Holy Spirit in these writings. I actually think it amplifies it. That's right. Mm-hmm. I agree. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom 
for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. So moving beyond the signs that are given here, Moses continues to express some doubt over whether or not he can do it. Um, And God's anger is kindled against Moses. And he says, hey, okay, I'll send Aaron with you. Like, yeah, you know, you're, you know, you know, that guy, Aaron, well, he'll go with you. He'll speak as well. But then we get something that we got to talk about, because I feel like if we don't talk about this story, and you guys know what I'm going to say here, I thought about skipping. I didn't even include it in the run sheet because I don't really it's hard for me to make heads or tails of it, but is the story of Moses's journey uh, to Egypt. Uh, <laughs> Everybody wants to skip it. <laughs> I didn't put it in here. Cause I'm like, man, do we got to talk about this? It, okay. So if you're not familiar with this part of the story um, and I've been reading this a lot and I've been thinking about it and reading some commentators on it just to try to like wrap my head around it, but they're headed back. Moses is head back. And it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Zipporah is his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's feet with it and said, sure, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that the Lord's, uh, that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay. Does anybody have help for me here on this? Cause we actually talked about this in a previous episode. I totally well, and I remember. have blanked on it. You blocked it out. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, so you can help me in, with this because I'm sure. I can't help you. I blocked it out too. Maybe I blocked <laughs> it out from trauma or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I remember nothing. <laughs> what is what is happening and yeah, why is, is it here? Yeah. Well, because if Moses is going to be um, a, a deliverer, he has to be. This is a little like um, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. He needs mm. to have he he needs to be um, compliant, basically, with God's um, revealed will if he's going to be an intercessor. And yeah. so um, it becomes apparent that he has left undone the work of circumcision. And so then you get these weird words from Zipporah and she says, you become a bridegroom of blood to me. But remember, we talked about in our last episode, her father is a priest of Midian, Mm -hmm, which means she is not a part of Abraham's covenant um, community. She's been grafted in. And the idea of circumcision, like it's weird to us. So imagine how weird it is to, to her. And so he's a bridegroom of blood to her in the sense that she is required to have her children, her male children, go through this ritual. And you have to imagine that's a weird, you know, that's a real, uh, we've at least heard of it and thought about it, but it would have been just like, what is even this supposed to mean? And so we see her essentially um, divide flesh and shed blood um, and interpose it between Abraham, I mean, between uh, Moses and and the holiness of God. Yep. So in in a small typology, she is a she's another female deliverer in this line of female deliverers that we find um, keeps popping up in the story of Exodus. Yes, that 
Okay. Clears it all up, right? We're just clear now. It's all fine. You know, let me float something at you, Jen. And you might be like, yeah, that's exactly what I was just saying. Um, so this might be me mansplaining to you back what you just told me, but I'm trying to wrap my head around this. <laughs> well, it's really safe to do that in our current culture. Oh, sure, so just knock yourself sure. out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So as I was reading this story, I was thinking about it like, okay, to be born again in the New Testament means to be born of water and blood. Mm-hmm. Israel will have to be born of water and blood. The ex, uh, the uh, blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the crossing of the Red Sea, that their new birth as a people is water and blood. Moses has already had the the born of water through mm-hmm. um, his like his origin story of of, mm-hmm. uh, of floating along the river, being rescued from what would have been the uh, the. Um, mm-hmm. his death. Um, He's been born of the water. Is this Moses being born of the blood? No, I don't think so. I think that he was, he was born of blood in a typological sense when he, he survives the, the death sentence that was placed on all Hebrew males. Okay. So like, that's what we will see echoed in the Passover is that just as he was spared under that Hmm. edict, um, they will be spared, Israel will be spared under the edict that falls on on Egypt, assuming that they place the blood on the doorpost. So I think what we see here, honestly, Mm -hmm. is a hint of the sacrificial system that we'll see put in place that um, there, it's just a reminder there. That is what circumcision continues to do is it reminds them, hey, blood is required, blood is required, blood is required. And so, you know, if that's the Old Testament sign of the covenant, mm-hmm. then, you know, fast forward to the New Testament sign of the covenant, and it, it is a bloodless sign. Why? Yeah. Because the sacrifice, the final sacrifice has been offered. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but at this point, that's not where we are in the story, right? And so we're going sure. to have constant reminders that between you and the holiness of God, there must be the parting of flesh and the shedding of blood. Yeah. And that reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness no of remission sin. of sin. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this is, is this a pure purification of Moses to, to serve think, his mediatorial you know role or his priestly role? I think he's learning, right? Because this is one of those situations. It, it reminds me a little of um, when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, mm-hmm. because you find yourself saying, well, God doesn't really want him to do that, does he? Like, what's happening here? I think it's a test for Abraham. I mean, mm-hmm. for, I'm sorry, I'm getting my names Moses. all snarled up. For Moses, um, uh, Moses is learning something because, you know, you read this and you're like, wait, God was going to kill Moses? Like, where does right. the story even go from there? No, God was not going to kill Moses. We understand that from Moses' perspective, from the perspective of Moses and Zipporah, he, that was the reality that was playing out. Um, we know the whole story, right? So we can go, oh, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but, but as far as Moses knew, and as far as Abraham knew, these things that God had said were going to happen were, were going to happen. And, and then we find that what God is doing is he is testing his servant. Um, and, and it's interesting to me, you know, that Zipporah is like, you know, the one who actually, Moses, mm-hmm. I mean, is apparently so terrified he can't even react. And Zipporah um, jumps into action. So, uh, but I think those two stories are similar. It's more about us seeing Moses grow as the future leader of Israel than it is about um, was God trying to kill Moses. Do you buy that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And we do see the, this has, a, there is a recurring motif in the story of scripture of the God-fearing pagan, I'm going to use that term there, Mm -hmm. God-fearing pagan 
mm-hmm. helping and assisting in the rescue of God's people. You think of this even in the it's historical like Pharaoh books. Saying, Pharaoh saying, get out of here with Sarah. Why did yeah. you say she was? Yeah, or Rahab wife? with yeah. the spies. Yes, Rahab, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The outsider. And yeah. the other theme that we're seeing here too, um, when he says, you know, you can take Moses with you. I mean, you can take Aaron with you. Man, I'm doing great today. Mm-hmm. He says, I may not say the names wrong in pronunciation, but I can sure swap them around a whole lot. Um, when God says you can take Aaron with you, I think a little of what we're seeing there is that motif that we've seen throughout of the younger brother instead uh-huh. of the older brother who's been charged with the significant task. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's actually kind of an unusual pairing that he gets to take Aaron with him and that they work out as a team, although you could argue that Aaron is going to have a very Esau-like moment in the story later on uh, in what we're going to see. But I think we're seeing that there again. It's like Moses is like, you have to have the wrong guy. Yep, yep. That's I don't right. have the firstborn credentials. You know, there's a lot, I think, going on yep. here. That's good. Um, so the stories of God's signs and promises of his judgment, are they're put into immediate contrast in, uh, with chapter five. And we're not going to spend a ton of time at chapter five. We're going to move chapter five and chapter six real quick. But I think it's important to point out um, that in chapter five, kind of like ugh, on the other side of town, so to speak, when God is promising, he's showing <laughs> these power. He's showing, yeah, meanwhile, he's showing these powerful signs to Moses that will lead to Israel's deliverance and redemption. It's like the cutaway scene here is like things have gone from bad to worse in Egypt, right? Now, making bricks without straw. JT, you ever done any bricklaying? <laughs> I actually have. Really? No, I have you really? <laughs> no. Oh, I was about to be like, whoa, man, I was setting that up for a joke and you just slammed me. Um, yeah, no, no, I've, I've never done that before. I can imagine what it'd be like, though. Do you think making bricks without straw easier or harder than making bricks with straw? I would imagine you, it's a lot harder. Yes. Like Using context clues, I'm going to go mm-hmm. with harder. Yeah, that's my guess, too. Never made bricks before. It does seem like they're not thrilled to be making the bricks to begin with, no, and certainly no. they're less thrilled about making them without straw. Mm-hmm. So things have gotten worse, and there is a little bit of contrast here of like, man, things are pretty bleak for the people of Israel, um, and yet at the right time, God is sending Moses in to deliver and rescue them. Uh, but on the other side of Exodus 5, we have a repetition of covenant promises um, mm-hmm. that God is going to do uh, what he has promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Moses that he's going to do. And he and Exodus 6 is really a great um, – it's almost like I see Exodus 6, maybe I'm wrong here, as the summary statement of like the first act, so to speak, of the Exodus story. Exodus 6 mm-hmm. to me functions almost like a, hey, let me kind of wrap up and conclude uh, what has happened so far and kind of sum it up before we get into the next act of this, which is Moses actually entering in to Egypt. It, it does feel a little bit like a, hey, just remember, I want to remind you of all these things before you go in to Egypt. Can I make one little comment about bricks before we get into that? Sure. I agree with you. Um, so if you noticed at the beginning of the Exodus account, we had um, the little note that they built for Pharaoh the storehouse cities of Pithom and Ramses. And now here we're hearing more about bricks, and um, we can assume that what's going on here is that they're building cities for the serpent king. 
And that is actually another motif that we see throughout the Bible. It starts with Cain, who is, he's cast out to wander in the land of Nod, and he is explicitly, and the people of God have been told, remember Tower Babel is like disperse, don't don't build, uh, don't have building projects that are for your own glory. And so I think it's important for us to see, and Cain's first act is to start building a city. And so there is this tension throughout the Bible of earthly kingdoms versus heavenly kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And when God calls his people out, out from Egypt, where they have literally been tasked with building um, Pharaoh's uh, monuments to himself, they are invited into the upside down version of that, which is you're going to have temporary dwellings for as long as you're here. Yeah. So it that that idea of that they're even the the instruments by which these bricks are being made is is heavily ironic based on what they're being called out to. That's right. JT, when you think about the promises that God makes here, um, that he's repeated, why do, why do we as the audience keep getting God basically saying the same thing? I mean, do you have any sense of like, this is, ha- this is not just the first time he's done it. He's done it multiple times already mm-hmm. in the book of Exodus, and they're all repetitions of what's already been told. And if the original audience of this is post-Exodus Israel, they already know this has happened. Why are they hearing about it here? I think there's a, like the human element of this is we keep forgetting the promises of God and what they are and why (laughs) is God doing what he's doing. I also just think in terms of just the structure of a story, it's very easy to read maybe Exodus 3 on its own or Exodus 15 Mm -hmm. on its own. And so what we're doing here in terms of the overarching narrative is we're being reminded about God's covenantal purposes here. We've kind of harped on this so far, but we're harping on it because the Bible's harping on it. God is not acting in a vacuum. He's acting in accordance with this pactum salutis that we talked about or the yeah. this eternal covenant that God has and the covenant made with Adam, the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's reminding him about his covenantal consistency. He yeah. is not departing from what he said he was going to do from the beginning. So even just to read it briefly, he's uh, you, we just talked about Exodus chapter 5, and uh, there's further oppression of Israel. Moses and Aaron are coming in, and, and God's people are being oppressed even more. They're still being fruitful and multiplying. And at the beginning of, of uh, Exodus 6, it says this, Then God spoke to Moses telling him, and he's reminding him about who he is, and what his purposes are for his people. He says, I am the Lord. That's God's mm-hmm. person, He, uh, his personality. I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by name the Lord. That's being reminded about Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. They knew me as covenantal. You know me as present. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. This is that place that we talked about and the, the land that they lived in as aliens. And at the end of verse five, it says, I have remembered my covenant. We talked about that in a previous episode. God has not forgotten something. He is returning to something. He's he is keeping his covenantal commitments. And it says in verse eight, I'm going to bring you to the land that I swore. This is God's purpose in God's place to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord, implying that he's going to be present with them. So everything that God's people lost in Eden, God is, and they're now in exile, God is promising to restore to them in the kingdom of God. And so he's reminding them of this, this purpose. Yes, you are being oppressed. And I think it's so easy. Um, this is going to sound a little preachy, but I don't mean for it to. How easy would it have been for God's people to be focused on their circumstances? Stances in Egypt, making bricks, being oppressed, not living in their play in the place, but God has reminded them of his character. It's not yep. just the circumstances that we're supposed to dwell on, but God's covenantal character to bring his promises 
to fulfillment. He's reminding them about who he is and what he intends to do in, in, in them and with them. Yeah. Not just here in this passage or in this story, but before and beyond, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Well, in the next episode, we're going to start getting into Moses before Pharaoh, uh, looking at the plagues. And this is where there are fireworks, uh, almost literally. Uh, so we're going to check things out. Uh, if you want to find Knowing Faith online, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you may have heard something about... Did you like that, Jen? Okay, great. Um, I think it's just I like you. So when you uh, say goofy you. things, it makes me laugh. Well, that's the number one reason I'm here. Uh, you may have heard about something in the show, a book, an ad that we ran, and you're like, how do I find out more information? I just heard that, but I want to find out more. Go to the show notes. Uh, in the episode description for a link to our sponsors webpage or go to the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, products that we vet in and believe in. Uh, leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. Check out our sister shows. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.